Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Well, the Apostle Paul said that he desired to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this morning, I've decided to do the same. This morning, we will gaze into the glory of Christ, not in his exaltation, but in his passion and his humiliation. While Jesus is hanging on the cross next to two guilty criminals. Our text in Luke 23 might be the most profound act of saving grace ever recorded in Scripture. When we gaze into the diamond of Christ, his glory could not shine more brightly. His humiliation, his grace, his sovereignty are put on display but they stand out even more brightly because they are contrasted against the pitch-black fabric of Calvary. And if Jesus is the diamond, we will turn this three-sided diamond against the darkness of Calvary to see three facets of Jesus' glory that shine brightly against the backdrop of the cross. And so this morning, we will consider three contrasts which will reveal Jesus' glory which will cause us to adore him as Savior and Lord. We'll look at the glory of his humiliation in 32 through 33, the glory of his grace in 34 through 39, and the glory of his sovereignty in 40 through 43. Let's read our text, Luke 23, 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one... The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our first contrast is the glory of Jesus' humiliation. In verse 32, we see that it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. In this passage, Jesus and the two criminals are both being put to death, but for very different reasons. First, consider the two criminals. Who are these criminals who are hanging next to Jesus on the cross? Matthew and Mark tell us that these criminals were specifically robbers, So here we see two thieves hanging next to Jesus. But interestingly, under Roman law, thieves were not normally executed. 
So why were these thieves receiving the death penalty? Well, stealing was most likely their normal practice, which is why they are identified as thieves, but it is likely that they were guilty of more serious crimes. It's hard to be certain of the exact crimes that hung these thieves on the cross. It's possible that these thieves could have been alongside Barabbas before he was arrested. You remember Barabbas, the notorious prisoner, that guilty murderer who was an insurrectionist, the criminal who was released in place of Jesus before Pilate. And here, these guilt-stained criminals are crucified next to the spotless Lamb of God. Now we, Grace Life, we can't let our familiarity with this passage cause us to miss the glory of Jesus' humiliation in this contrast. How can it be that these two criminals, having done deeds worthy of death, would be placed to the left and the right of the innocent Son of God, the guilty with the innocent, the evil with the good, the unrighteous with the righteous? And yet these thieves are next to Jesus. Jesus, the sinless one, the one who never hurt a soul, the one who only showed grace and kindness to all his friends and enemies. Jesus was no thief. He was the opposite. He gave the costliest gift that anyone could ever give, his very own life. But the humiliation of our Lord did not stop there. The location and nature of Jesus' crucifixion served to further insult his glory. Verse 33 says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. The exact location of Jesus' crucifixion is unknown. We are also unsure as to why this location is called the skull. It could be because it was a place where regular executions took place. There could have been skulls left all over the ground. Or it could be a name referring to death. But one thing we do know is that this was a place of death. Not only was this a place of death, but it was also a place that was visible. Making those who were crucified shamefully exposed as they were slaughtered before the whole city. And this was a place that represented justice for the worst of criminals. And what made this worse was that Jesus was humiliated not just in front of people he didn't know, but in front of his enemies, mocking, scoffing, relishing the torture and dishonor that Jesus endured. But here at this moment, because Jesus was present with guilty criminals, this is not only a time of justice, but it is also a time of murder. Justice for the thieves, but murder for Jesus. Can't you see the condescension of the glory of the Son of God, Grace Life? He is so humble. He is so gracious. He is so merciful that he voluntarily humbled himself to this position for you and for me. But Jesus' humiliation goes even further. Verse 33 says, There they crucified him. Consider the mode of crucifixion. Unlike a guillotine or lethal injection, Crucifixion was not clean and it was not fast. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment reserved only for the worst kind of sinners. And what we know about crucifixion is this. It was slow, it was painful, and it was humiliating. 
crucifixion could last for a very, very long time. All the different elements that inflicted pain on the crucified could last for hours and even days. And this was intentional. The Romans used this form of capital punishment with the intention of inflicting maximum agony on the criminal. But not only was it slow, it was terribly painful. The criminal who was crucified was first beaten, then tied to a pole where he would be whipped with a braided leather thong with bits of metal and bone embedded in it. They were whipped from the upper back down to behind the knee. Then the victim was nailed to the cross through the wrists and the feet to hold him there. In order to breathe, the criminal had to push up with his feet and pull down with his arms, which would only exacerbate the pain from the open wounds on his back caused by the leather lashes. All this was on top of the fatigue, the lack of sleep, the dehydration, and the hunger that the criminal had already been experiencing. All the pain, struggling, helplessness, and agony produced maximum humiliation. Crucifixion was terrible. And it was certainly sufficient, if not too severe, for the worst kinds of criminals. But not Jesus. Not for the Son of God. Not for the one who committed no evil. But there he was, hanging next to two criminals, humiliated. I dare say you'd be reluctant to wish crucifixion on your worst enemies. And yet Jesus, the friend of sinners, the innocent one who never hurt a soul, who loved with perfect love, was unjustly tortured on that cross. And yet it was his love that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life until it is, a, it is finished. I know that it is, it is finished. His love for his father and his love for his people held him there on that cross in that shame. Jesus was beaten, scourged, and half-naked, shamed, and hanging helplessly before his enemies on that wooden cross. Now, you know what's so hard to fathom? In all of this suffering and humiliation, Jesus got the exact opposite of what he deserved. Jesus deserved the highest honor and praise, but instead he received the worst kind of dishonor and mocking. The contrast between Jesus the righteous and the unrighteous thieves magnifies Jesus' humble condescension. It causes us to marvel at the Son of God who would lower himself to save unworthy sinners like us. And the second contrast in verse 34 through 39 causes us to glorify Jesus for his gracious response against the backdrop of the people's disdain. The innocent one and two criminals. The one who gave everything that he had away for those who would steal to get what they did not work for. The one who was rightly adored by saints and angels in heaven now has his company among wicked men exposed and shamed by the most horrific kind of death. What a remarkable condescension, Grace Life. Can you behold the glory of the condescension of your Savior this morning? I mean, this is your Savior. Lowly in a manger, lowly on a donkey, and lowly on a cross. 
And we adore Jesus for his humiliation. And now we will adore him for his grace in the second contrast. See, Jesus, he responds, and then the people respond. But there are two very different responses, as you will see in verse 34 through 39. Jesus displays a grace that has never been seen. Nothing like this has ever been witnessed in human history, and yet the people respond with disdain for him. And as we begin to look at these two different responses, we will take them a bit out of order. Rather than looking at Jesus' response first as it appears in the text, we will look first at the people's response and then at Jesus' response. Verse 34 says, And they cast lots to divide his garments. Think about the animality the beast-like behavior of these soldiers bidding for Jesus' clothing? This is a public execution. His clothing would have been soaked with blood and full of dirt, and yet all that these soldiers could think about was Jesus' garments. How despicable, how detestable. Soldiers bidding for Jesus' garments like some kind of game? And little did these Roman soldiers know that they were fulfilling the prophecy found in Psalm 22. As they divided up the garments and cast lots for Jesus' tunic, they were fulfilling Scripture, one sinful deed at a time. Each deed was revealing how great humanity needed a Savior. I mean, imagine how little they must have thought about Jesus, treating his blood-stained clothing as having greater worth than his own life. Oh, but the preciousness of Jesus is incomparable. His glory is eternally satisfying. And yet the value of Jesus continued to diminish, being crowded out by the worldly hearts of these sinful men. The dignity and personhood of Jesus was so far removed from the minds of the Roman soldiers that all they could think about was waiting for him to die so that they could gamble for his clothing. But sadly, there's more to see regarding the depravity of man. The animalistic greed of the soldiers bidding for Jesus' clothes was followed by the selfishness of the crowd. Verse 35 says, And the people stood by watching. What? They stood by watching? Really? They just stood by and watched the one who provided the loaves? who healed the sick, who blessed the children, who gave sight to the blind and who was kind to all? Had they no concern for the injustice of this act? No resolve to speak out? No, they stood by and watched as they did for every crucifixion. I mean, how is this any different than Nazi Germany when the German citizens stood by watching their Jewish neighbors being hauled away like cattle to be slaughtered in the masses? The crowd may not have mocked Jesus, but they certainly dishonored him with their selfish complacency. And for many, they were no better than the Germans who quietly watched the Holocaust. But for others, this was probably no more than a morbid form of entertainment, like the blood sport of the Roman gladiators. How selfish and hard their hearts must have been. How could they stomach what was happening especially since the righteous one was hanging guiltless on that cross. 
But the hearts of the crowd were unmoved. The crowd was selfish and lukewarm. The Jewish rulers were not. They were much more assertive, though, in their disdain for Jesus. Verse 35 says, But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Notice the rulers scoffed at him. These religious rulers mocked and ridiculed Jesus. They knew that Jesus' ministry threatened their lust for religious fame, and so they were eager to see Jesus helpless, and they took great pleasure in his suffering. The Jews who were dead in their trespasses and sins, blinded to their need for a Savior, mocked Jesus as Savior, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. What hatred, what blasphemy, what blindness these religious leaders displayed, having witnessed Jesus' mighty acts of spiritual and physical salvation, and yet they shut their eyes and relished in the scene where Jesus the Savior appeared more helpless on the cross than those he actually saved. Oh, but if they only knew, if they only knew that what appeared like the greatest moment of weakness in Jesus' life was actually the most triumphant act of grace the world has ever seen. They thought that they had won. They thought that they put Jesus on the cross. Oh, but how wrong they were. They were not the ultimate reason Jesus was hanging on the cross. Jesus was. Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord, John 10, 18. The Jews did not hold Jesus on that cross. The nails could not stop him. No one had the power to stop the sheer omnipotence of the eternal Son of God. Jesus could have incinerated them with a look. But what did he do? He laid down his life. The religious leaders saw no power in Jesus because he did not come down from that cross. But Jesus remained on that cross for his people. It was for your sins that he was there. It was your sins that held him there. He died on that cross for you, Grace Life, for you and for me. And so Jesus continued to endure the evil actions and words of these religious leaders. But if that isn't enough, The soldiers also participated in this disgusting mocking fest. Look at verses 36 through 37. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Although the Roman soldiers were not well-versed in the theology of the Jews, they knew what a king was. And they certainly knew that Jesus called himself a king. And rather than being honorable executioners, they were wicked soldiers and they mocked Jesus' kingship as if he was nothing but a low-life and crazy criminal. And yet Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And a king would have deserved the highest quality of wine. But these foolish soldiers offered him sour wine. A king also deserved proven loyalty from his subjects. But these Roman mockers demanded that Jesus prove his kingship by saving himself. 
A king was worthy of an honorable and accurate inscription describing the scope of his rule. But these Romans harassed Jesus, placing a mocking sign of his kingship in their unbelief. They did not know that the one whom they offered sour wine to was the one who would return in triumphant glory to crush his enemies under the winepress of God's wrath. And they did not understand that the reason Jesus did not save himself was not because he was powerless to do so, but because sinners are powerless to stand before a holy and just God. The only If only, if only they knew that Jesus hung on that cross not to be punished, but to purify. Not to pay for his sins, but for his people's sins. And there was was not, he was not there so people would perish, but so that he might purchase pardon through his atoning work on the cross. And despite the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus, the mocking continued. And there are at least three ways the religious leaders mock Jesus. First, they mock Jesus for his deity as son of God. Where is that in the text, you say? Well, in the parallel account, Matthew records that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Jews, excuse me, mocked him for calling himself the son of God. It says this, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God, he was calling himself God. And the Jews understood this very well. You remember in John 5.18 when it said, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he, was not, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And the Pharisees understood this, and it made them very, very angry. You see, calling Jesus the Son of God in the Jews' mind was the same as calling him God. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing, and they knew what he was doing, and so they sought to kill him. Not only did they mock Jesus' as deity, but they mocked him for his authority as king. Luke 23, 37 says that the soldiers mocked Jesus. They said, if you are the king of the Jews, Save yourself. And in the parallel account, Matthew 27 records that the religious leaders also mocked Jesus as king. It says, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down from that cross and we will believe in him. The soldiers and the religious leaders are tantalizing Jesus as if he had no authority, as if he wasn't the king. They are treating the king of Israel and the universe as a joke. And in effect, they are blaspheming the true king and committing treason against him. But Jesus was committed to his path. Even as the high king, Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself to the grave. He was in the highest position possible. And he lowered himself to the lowest position possible. Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was murdered, but not just any murder. 
He suffered the lowest form of death the Roman government had to offer, a death for criminals, crucifixion. If only they knew that the hands that they had pierced were the same hands that were holding the universe together at that moment, the same hands that keep the earth in orbit, the same hands that sustain every blade of grass and every hair on their heads. And yet they use their hands to pierce his hands while despising his divine authority. And so they mock Jesus for his deity and his authority. But they also mocked him for his work as Savior. Luke 23, 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And in the parallel accounts, the religious leaders said, he saved others, can he save himself? So they mocked Jesus for his saving works. They treated him as if he wasn't the savior. They acted as as if everything Jesus said in his entire ministry was false. They acted as if Jesus was not the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They acted as if Jesus was not the only begotten son They will give eternal life to whosoever believes. They acted as if Jesus was not the way, the truth, and the life who said that nobody can come to the Father except through me. But this is Jesus, King and Savior, the one in Revelation 5 who has redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as Jesus was mocked on that cross, In that moment, the people did not believe that Jesus was the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. They did not understand that he was the one who would leave the 99 sheep and go to rescue the one. They did not realize that Jesus loved his own and that he will never leave them or forsake them and that he will bring every sheep to himself. They did not care when Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means turn away. Consider all that Jesus has gone through so far. You have the animality of the soldiers. Then you have the sneering of the rulers. And then beyond that, you have the mocking of the soldiers. And then the sarcasm of the sign. And then the abuse of the criminals. And what was Jesus' response? In verse 34, rather than responding back with anger or contempt, Jesus responds with the most kind, most selfless, most gracious words that could ever be uttered. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a gracious response. How would this response look toward all the evil that we have just seen? The animality of the soldiers. Father, forgive them. The selfishness of the crowd. Father, forgive them. The sneering of the rulers. Father, forgive them. The mocking of the soldiers. Father, forgive them. The sarcasm of the sign. Father, forgive them. The abuse of the criminals. Father, forgive them. 
How can we not be amazed, Grace Life, at the large-heartedness of the one who freely bestows forgiveness on sinners like us? Consider Jesus' gracious response in our text. I can't think of a clearer demonstration of the sovereign saving grace. Jesus forgives, not because of how well we treat God, but because of how gracious God is toward us. The creator of the universe is mocked, beaten, treated unjustly by his creatures. The forgiveness that Jesus wants for his enemies is undeserved, and yet Jesus intercedes. Jesus shows no hint of retaliation, no ounce of anger. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He did not return evil for evil. Jesus is fully self-controlled, and he is dead set on his mission to die for his people. Now, Grace Life, this passage, it's not primarily in the Bible to learn how we can respond in trials. And it's not here to make Jesus our example, but to exalt him as our substitute and to marvel at the grace of our Lord. But I don't want you to miss the secondary application here. Given that we have beheld Jesus' glory, can we now be fueled by this grace toward our neighbors or even our enemies? As we see the grace of Jesus, can we extend that grace to others? Because that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.21 and following. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. Is that me? Is that what others see in my life when they look at me? Having received this grace, can we now extend that grace out to others? Grace Life, what is your heart's reaction toward those who treat you unkindly and unfairly? When people look down on you, are you tempted to fight back or demand to be treated better? Do you want the last word? Do you have trouble dealing with your anger and your pride? Or do you remember that as slaves of our master, we must be willing to suffer as our Savior suffered? We must be willing to love as our Savior loved. And we must be gracious as our Savior is gracious. Now, did you catch the second half of that prayer? After asking the Father to forgive, Jesus said, For they know not what they do. What does this mean? What does it mean? Are they somehow ignorant of their sins and therefore absolved from guilt? What does it mean that those who are crucifying and mocking Jesus do not know what they are doing? The answer is that Jesus is acknowledging the ignorance of his enemies. He is identifying their blindness, their failure to see 
that they are actually killing the Lord of glory. Paul gives us insight into this truth in 1 Corinthians 2.7 when he says that the rulers of this age would not have crucified Jesus had they been aware of who he really was. Although those who crucified Jesus are culpable for what they did, they did not understand the full weight of their actions. In other words, it is one thing to unjustly kill and mock a regular man, but it's quite another to kill and mock the Lord of the universe. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Jews and Gentiles did not understand the wisdom of God. As Jesus was crucified on that cross, it was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Gentiles. They were utterly blind and in need of supernatural help. They needed their eyes to be opened to see the glory of the one who hung before them on the cross. But at that moment, nobody cared. Nobody cared about Jesus. He was forsaken by all. Until we see the glory of his sovereignty. Because in that dark and gloomy moment, when Jesus' life was hanging by a thread, one of his sheep turns to him while hanging on the cross, and he humbly asks, Remember me. Remember me. The thief now inclines himself toward Jesus. He demonstrates a complete change in direction and he petitions Jesus saying, remember me. When did the thief want to be remembered? When Jesus comes into his kingdom. You see, the crowd did not believe that Jesus was the king. The soldiers did not believe that Jesus was the king. The Jews did not believe that Jesus was the king. And the thieves did not believe that Jesus was the king. But now, to this thief, Jesus was his king. And while Jesus was at the lowest point of his life, when Jesus looked the weakest and most helpless, he exercised his sovereignty as Lord and dispensed the grace of God in salvation. And you know what he does? He regenerates that thief right there while he's hanging on that cross. When the thieves were mocking, it's like they were saying, you know what would be a good display of your power, Jesus? How about you take the nails out of your hands and ours and get us off that cross? And it's like Jesus was saying, you know what's a better display of my power? If I take the chains off that man's heart while I'm staying on the cross. And in that moment, when Jesus is tempted to exercise power outside of his Father's authority by getting off that cross, he dispenses saving grace toward one of his sheep, drawing him into the fold. And so we have adored Jesus, have we not, Grace Life, for the glory of his humiliation and for the glory of his gracious response. And now we're going to adore him for the glory of his sovereignty to save and we're going to see his sovereignty manifested in the contrast between the two thieves, the repentant one and the unrepentant one. 
And in this last section, here we will see the king treated like a criminal and the criminal treated like a king. This is the first time in the scene where we see a change in heart. The turning point is in verse 40. When one thief turns to the other to rebuke him for mocking Jesus. I mean, do you see what's going on here? Not only does the thief stop mocking, but he boldly rebukes his friend. In a split second, a total change of direction. What happened here? Why did he rebuke his friend? Well, when you look at verse 40, the repentant thief said, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Notice the words that this thief uttered. First, the thief feared God. For the first time, he really understood the holiness and the justice of God. He was now concerned about the afterlife because he knew that God can and that God will punish sinners and he did not want to be one of them and because of this change in heart the repentive thief could not tolerate the arrogance and foolishness of his friend he could not stomach the condescending speech and the insults he was not silent like the crowds and he no longer mocked like the others You see, the fear of God is a key ingredient in repentance. True repentance will always include fear of God and recognition of one's own sinfulness. The second component of true repentance is seen when the thief fully embraces his deserved consequences. And this is exactly what the thief understood when he said, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. The repentant thief did not try to minimize his sin. He did not try to make himself look better than he was, but he embraced the full force of his punishment. This honest, transparent, and humble response can only be attributed to the sovereign, saving grace of our Lord. But notice the other thief. The hypocrisy of the unrepentant thief embodies the height of spiritual deadness. In his dying moments, rather than being softened by his fear of death, this thief oozed out selfishness and hatred toward the Son of God, mocking and insulting. He said, save yourself and us. The only reason that he wanted Jesus to save himself was because he ultimately knew that if Jesus saved himself, Jesus could save him and his friend. The thief did not care that the red-hot embers of hell were being stoked with every insult that he hurled toward Jesus. He did not care that the flames of eternal judgment would shortly receive him upon his last breath. Like so many unbelievers who hear the gospel today, the thief was more interested in how Jesus can help him with his physical needs than how he can help him with his greater spiritual needs. And there are some of you today who need to hear this because you fit this category. You're more interested in improving your life on this earth than finding your salvation and ultimate happiness in the Son of God. This is an impossible pursuit. You will fail. And I urge you to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ because there you'll find joy 
and you'll find forgiveness, just like the thief. So let's consider for a moment some significant truths about Jesus that the dying thief acknowledged. First, he acknowledged that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Verse 41 says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now consider this for a moment. As this thief is hanging on the cross in an immense amount of pain, having just mocked Jesus, he now confesses that Jesus is guiltless and that he is unjustly hanging beside him. What could have gone through this thief's mind to bring him to that conclusion? The thief likely had a certain knowledge of Jesus prior to hanging on the cross. The text doesn't tell us exactly what he was thinking. But I have often wondered... What events in Jesus' life these thieves would have witnessed? I mean, surely they were aware of the breadth of Jesus' ministry. It's not unreasonable that when Jesus fed the 5,000, the thieves were there among the crowds. I mean, can you imagine as Jesus graciously fed the crowd, the thieves could have easily enjoyed a free lunch and they could have used the occasion to steal from their fellow citizens while they were distracted. Or perhaps on the cross, the thieves' eyes were open to recall the great miracles of Jesus. How he opened the blind man's eyes, healed Jairus' daughter, cast out demons, or healed the paralytic, or cleansed the leper, or healed the mute man, or raised Lazarus from the dead. I can't imagine how they could have failed to witness Jesus' power. But surely, they would have witnessed Jesus and his impeccable character. They would have seen Jesus' unparalleled wisdom as he frustrated the evil plans of the Pharisees or how his profound wisdom silenced them with an answer or when he showed compassion on the worst of sinners, even the prostitutes and tax collectors or when Jesus blessed the little children and showed them a kind of compassion that even surprised his disciples. Maybe he witnessed Jesus' incredible restraint by not reviling those who revile him. Even at the present moment during the crucifixion. And we know that from this text, he would have witnessed the mocking that came from the Jewish leaders, from the Roman soldiers, and even from his own mouth. And yet Jesus did not get angry, nor did he repay evil for evil, but He restrained himself and he was silent and gracious in speech. And in this moment, as the thief calls out to Jesus, he is calling out to his Savior. Not just the Savior, but his Savior. He was not just a king, but he was his king. He was Jesus to the thief. And as Jesus hung on that cross about to experience the full wrath of his father for the sins of his people among those sins would certainly have been those of the repentant thief hanging right next to him. And the thief asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Notice the gracious response of Jesus. Amidst all that Jesus had gone through, In the midst of all the suffering, the beating, the flogging, the crucifixion, the fatigue, the dehydration, the abandonment by his friends, and just a few hours away from death, Jesus did not forget the one whom the Father had given him. 
Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know my own and my own know me, Jesus said. Jesus knew that the thief was his sheep even before the thief knew that he was Jesus' sheep. When the thief was mocking Jesus, Jesus knew at that moment that the criminal's sins toward him would soon be paid for on that cross. And when the Holy Spirit quickened the heart of the thief, his eyes were opened to realize that he knew Jesus. And he cried out to Jesus for mercy. Just imagine, the thief and Jesus make eye contact. And Jesus looks into the eyes of his sheep and he tells him the most reassuring words that could possibly be uttered. Today, you will be with me in paradise. What a comfort. What a relief. Today, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said. Not tomorrow, but today. Oh, the joy that must have filled the thief's heart. After exercising his sovereignty to save, Jesus reassures this thief that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus promises this thief that the very day he called out is the same day that they will be together in paradise. Is this your hope, Grace Life? Are you living your life ready to be with your Savior at any moment? Does your heart stretch toward heaven where Christ is when you consider the glory of Jesus' humiliation as the spotless lamb hangs next to the filthy criminals or the glory of his gracious response as he petitions the Father to forgive his persecutors or the glory of his sovereignty to save as he saves the thief, as he saved all who comes to him and as he saved us. Like the thief on the cross, we understand that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, don't we? We understand that Jesus paid it on the cross, that Jesus obeyed the law so that he can grant us perfect righteousness. And our confidence is in Christ. And because of this, we have assurance that we too will be with him in paradise. And so let's adore him for this grace life. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your kindness. You have chosen a people for your son to redeem. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving us. All that the Father has give, given to you will come and you will never turn anyone away. And we're so grateful, Lord Jesus, as we consider who you are, that you would humble yourself from that high position, dying a death for the worst of murders, and that you would be so gracious to respond to all those different people mocking and tormenting you. And yet, you are so gracious. And how you are so sovereign over everything that even on that cross when you're about to die, you save your sheep. And so we thank you for that. And we adore you for that. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file.
Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.